0: Okay, so uh, we've received some pretty distressing news, Uh, not totally unexpected, probably unexpected uh, in terms of how quickly it happened. But we've learned in the last 24 hours that our friend and colleague and huge fife and drum uh, historian Pete Emmerich has passed away. And it's a uh, rather sad state of affairs. We knew it was coming, but it happened quickly and suddenly, and it's kind of sad. So what we were thinking here at the bottom of the glass was to maybe revisit an interview we did with Pete a couple of years ago, where we talked about some of the sensitivities in Fife and Drum regarding some of the tunes that have been staples in the fife and drum community for uh decades and we had a really good chat with him so uh i don't know brendan it's it it did come as a shocker to me because just last weekend at the lexington muster i performed with two cores and one of the cores was uh pete's Corps, grand army of the republic which is an evolution of the uxbridge Uh, core that he was in when he was a kid. And also with uh, Grand Republic, we did uh, a little bit of a tribute to Peter and to Richard Rudquist as well. So this is kind of tough. Because Pete was he was the guy man if you needed to go and talk to somebody about the history of whether it was military Fife and Drum or historical Fife and Drum, he was the guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, admittedly, um I wasn't that that close to him. I I didn't know him that well uh before we we had that interview with him in twenty twenty, I think. I think it was our sixth episode. So we were very new at, at all of this at the time and, and um something had come up uh where there was a discussion going on about um, you know, playing some historical tunes and um, if, if some of these tunes were still appropriate, um, you know, in a, in a sensitive environment, and, and uh, we decided to reach out to to him uh, to do this interview, and it was just fantastic. Uh, but since then, um, I, I was able to reach out to him on a, on a number of things, um, uh, talking about, you know, historical drumming, trying to find uh, information on, on different manuals. He was just a wealth of knowledge, um and I, I, I gather that he he had ALS, uh, and 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 Brian, you were explaining to me that you just he just told you this past September at the Sudbury muster. So, you know, it was very quick moving, and um, you know, it, it's just a, a very sad uh, day for our community, and, and and we certainly lost the giant.
0: We did, and and it was fast moving. And just to kind of recant that that situation at. Uh, sudbury last year so we're talking sudbury of last year we're talking september and peter came up to me and he said hey look i'm here i'm kind of talking to a few people i'm not announcing it yet but my doctor said i have something going on they don't know if it's als but it has als type um qualities to it and he was particularly worried about that uh and that was september and we lost him yesterday, which was you know may twelfth of twenty twenty three so it moved fast and it moved aggressively and um yeah so so that was that was that was pretty heavy, but he oh you know, he knew everything about Fife and Drum, he was the guy to go to if you if you needed to get some historical data on this particular period, or this particular thing you're trying to do. I mean, he was involved with Sturbridge Village for years, you know, as an historian and, uh, you know, as the as the guy who kind of made Sturbridge Village work and and um, made it the attraction that it was. So um yeah so I think it's kind of cool that we're doing this and kind of reissuing this particular podcast that we did a couple of years ago that had to do with some period music that uh we, we kind of had to discuss at that at that point um but we've also just been notified about his funeral arrangements and I'll I'll kind of talk about those right now if that's cool Yeah yeah yeah, so so the arrangements for Pete will be this coming Thursday and Friday, which I guess will be I'm trying to do the the calendar math here. So I guess that'll be like May I don't know 17th, 18th, something like that. Thursday and Friday of this coming week, uh, but it'll, it'll be at the uh, Buma or Buma Funeral Home on Thursday. That'll be the wake. Uh, And that's in Uxbridge Mass from 4 to 7. And then the funeral will be on Friday at St. Mary's Church on Menden Street in Uxbridge. And that'll be on Friday at 11 o'clock. And then he'll be buried in St. Mary's Cemetery on Granite Street in Uxbridge following that funeral. So uh, it's sad. And it's, it's big for Fife and Drum because he was... He was a big person and knew a lot and we'll never have that knowledge again you know aside from what he's imparted to us which is huge in volumes but not everything he had in his head
1: right well you know we, we certainly think you're going to enjoy this discussion and, and you know we hope as you listen to it you remember pete um you know and, and all that he brought to fife and drum um and uh, it, it was certainly a discussion that I really, really enjoyed and that came right at the time where we were questioning whether we should be talking about something like this. And um, and, and he put it uh, really into perspective and I really enjoyed it It was what it needs to be. And this is what it was. Um, and that's what it should continue to be. So I uh, hope you enjoy this discussion.
0: Hmm. We wanted to talk about the ongoing discussion in our community regarding songs that our cores have played over the years uh, that may or may not be appropriate in the past or the current time, or may or may not even have been misunderstood over time. Uh, we don't want this to be a political discussion because it's not what the bottom of the glass is about, but we do want it to be an informative discussion with expert perspective that neither Dave nor Brendan or I can bring to the conversation. So we'd like to welcome probably the best person to speak on this subject. Pete Emmerich is an avid historian, and expert in the traditions, origins, and evolution of historical fife and drum and military music. Pete's historical perspective on this topic will be invaluable. Pete Emmerich, thanks for coming on. We're really glad you're here.
2: Brian, thanks for having me. Brendan, Dave as well. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to speak uh, before the audience and and, uh, hopefully I can uh, elaborate on some of the historical aspects of what they do and what the community's been doing and how it's interacted over the years. And uh, like I said, uh, welcome the opportunity.
3: So, Pete, I'm going to start off here. Can you tell us a little bit about the research that you've done and continue to do in the realms of folk music, fife and drum, military music, um, that gives you this context?
2: Well, a lot of what I do, I inherited from my from my father, who, of course, was in the fife and drum world, and, and his compatriots, uh, Art Schrader from Old Surbridge Village, George Carroll, of course, uh, and numerous individuals, Eddie Olson. Uh, folks that I call contemporaries, uh, I well, was a kid in those environments. And in doing so, it enlightened me to a, a whole different idea of what we're doing, you know, what we've done in the traditional Fife and Drum world. Uh, using that in a historical perspective and, and performing for reenactments and uh, at museums, uh, I've had an opportunity to, to take what I've learned in that environment and expand on that uh, through public demonstrations, individual presentations, and, again, uh, the continued research of, of, uh, of my predecessors. That, in a nutshell, and, uh, of course, instructing kids and having a junior corps and maintaining uh, our, our own fife and drum uh, core here in, in the community uh, of Uxbridge, and, and uh, that's what's led me down this road.
0: So uh, let me ask you this, and this is kind of a, an unrelated topic, but I always find it interesting to ask this of someone who uh, has spent so much time building cores, maintaining cores, uh, keeping cores moving forward. I mean, how how has your recruitment opportunities? How have they been uh, recently, like in Uxbridge and some of the other things you're involved with? Have you have you had trouble getting? getting new blood in the core and losing people through attrition and that type of thing. Uh,
2: Interestingly enough, we're all old blood (laughs) and we managed to migrate into a circle because of our old bloodedness. Um, And, and and we've made our our, our performances accommodate our ages. And and the, the, the one thing about it is, is, is the guys that, that perform with us and gals again, are, of a class unto themselves they they're a great group of people and and Brian and Dave uh you've experienced uh the way we work in a lot of cases um sure have great to put people that i consider professionals together and make some wonderful music um that's a, a state of ease that puts me almost into a retirement mode when it comes to managing fife and drum. Uh, to 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 look out at uh, a parade review at Gettysburg that we do for Remembrance Day to see thousands of people marching in this parade, uh, and and maybe a, a a tenth of them that are actually in step, and to see our corps step off. Uh, with a conglomeration of everybody from the United States—I mean, everybody—when I talk about that, from California, from uh, Maryland and Virginia, and and from all over the country, we come together for that one weekend to to make this happen. And we we look like we've been marching together for a hundred years. It's just—it's phenomenal experience for me to do things like that. And so the the nucleus of our core. Um, you know kind of maintains and, and and does again the music and 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 picks that out and and we we direct this over distance now, sending out recordings and and music to folks and and when it all comes together it's just phenomenal because everybody's been doing it for as long as they have and and it's a really comfortable place to be uh, the old persona of having an identity that was local and 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 strict to the guidelines of what competition cores and fife and drum cores in the past had with you know well this person's a core jumper this one you know unreliable won't turn out for half the jobs all of those things are gone they're gone they're historic you know uh, we don't we don't experience that uh and and that's really the greatest part of it we can come together and celebrate as a a community and we've only gotten to that stage in the last you know five or ten years um it hasn't it hasn't been uh always like that. And uh, I I have younger kids. uh, In fact, I'm sure some of you have even played with them. uh, I've caught the kids' toy out at Old Sturbridge Village to perpetuate and continue that activity there. Uh, I've had some great luck with homeschool folks, much as Common has with uh, the the Lexington William Diamond Corps. Um, And and again, there is a lot of things that, uh, that that dynamic has introduced to us. Uh, in doing so, again, you, you look at what you're producing. Um, it's brought in different races and different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and you want to be sensitive to that when, when we start to introduce music, especially that has some sort of a, a, a discord to it that might be modernly interpreted.
1: So, Peter, when – I think of the fife and drum community, I think of a, of a community that is uh, you know takes all kinds, and you just alluded to that uh, just uh, just now. What do you think the relationship is between historic fife and drum and, and fife and drum in the contemporary modern context? It,
2: it, interestingly enough, um, it, it's all historic. <laughs> uh, I, that's the best way I can phrase it because when you look at the Connecticut Valley and the traditions that have existed in the cause that came out of the Connecticut Valley, Um, they've maintained these traditions for hundreds of years. I'm going to say hundreds of years. If you look back towards the centennial of 1876 and you see some of the documentation of fife and drum that was going on at that particular time and the tunes that they were playing uh, if you look at the books and publications the tutors that you all learn from when you talk about the the heroes of drumming I'm gonna I'm gonna go on the drumming route here I mean because you guys well you're really not all that sensitive to tune titles <laughs> when you look at drum beatings there's only the Connecticut halftime and only us New Yorkers and uh, I mean us Massachusetts and New Yorkers folks have any Bias towards that, <laughs> so I mean, the reality of it is, uh, it's um, it's it's a different climate today. It really, truly is a different climate today than it was in the past. But it is all historical. You're perpetuating a history from the centennial. You're perpetuating a, a history that existed at the turn of the century. You're pro- you're projecting what was projected back then, and that to me is is so important it, it's so important because at one time new england and new york were the only nucleus of that of that type of tradition and having that tradition in place, there's, there's not many countries not many states that can say that they've had that that level of continuous application um and it obviously appeals to people it it, it keeps bringing people into its its venue and um uh, Again, it's a community that welcomes. That. Uh, we we all know who each other are when we've been around this circuit. Uh, we all share uh, our experiences. That's uh, you don't find that anywhere. You don't, you can't join a club. You can't go to an organization, a sports organization, and find that level of camaraderie. Uh, people do this for their sheer enjoyment, and and it's not. Anything you will find anywhere else in this country, it's it's very very unique, uh, and it's important. It's important that we do this because it is truly an American tradition.
3: So, with the idea of fife and drum being like an open community um, to, to to all people of all ethnicities and um, a very welcoming community, um, do you think that there are some some tunes? Um, that are common in Fife and Drum that need a second look? Um, and are there potentially some that just need further context? Uh,
2: well, I, I've always approached this issue from a perspective of appropriateness. Uh, it really didn't matter what the bias was that was, was being exposed in a big picture It was what's appropriate for the situation that you are presenting yourself from, too. For instance, many corps do St. Patrick's Day parades. And when you choose your music for that parade, you don't march down the street playing Rule Britannia. It might be offensive to some of the crowd watchers. And again, knowing what your audience is. Is, is is half of what a, a core director or a fife major, or a drum major, whoever is going to pick those particular tunes out, um, is, is is half of the battle there. Now, it's it's it is truly easy to offend people with music. It it really is because it is a complex language. It is a language you got to understand that it's a device of communication that we're using to communicate a certain thought, and I say that certain thought, that certain thought is associated with the lyrics or with the song title. Um, You're going to hear me talk more about what a tune is, and I say a tune. As fifers and drummers, we're instrumentalists, and we play tunes. We don't play songs. People can say that, uh, but the lyrics are representative of a song, not a tune. And unfortunately, Over time, tunes that have been around for a long time get lyrics in song that don't necessarily meet today's standards by uh, what we would call or consider socially acceptable. Um, I'm going to probably strike a, a, a really difficult chord here with some folks, but I'm sure that every one of you have played the tune Old Dan Tucker. And when you hear the tune "Old Dan Tucker," you hear a simple melody and a really quaint drum beating that accompanies that melody. And and we we learn this as kids in some cases, in a lot of cases, or as beginners. And we have affection for the music that we learned as beginners, as 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 as, as new entries into this. Uh, but when you think about the tune "Old Dan Tucker," what does that mean? well, that can't possibly be offensive to anybody. Um, it's just a tune that we learned in Ask, Acting Oslin's book or, uh, you know, The Spirit of 76 or any of these, these tutors that, that we learned uh, these, these fife and drum tunes from. And uh, when you look at the lyrics of it and understand who the author was, being, of course, uh, Daniel Decatur Emmett, and what he did throughout his life, um, and how he gained his income, we're we're voicing a musical expression of support for that author um, by performing that tune. And, and believe me, it's not a contemporary voice of support; it's it's a historic presentation of that support. And. Uh, Unfortunately, in today's perspective, we, we we look at what goes, what's going on in the monument world. We look at what's going on in the streets uh, with the law enforcement issues and, and all of these these issues that seem to be uh, identifying um, again the the bias that might be associated with with, with our community as it exists. There's, there's a very complicated structure to when we, when we talk about those particular tunes, minstrel tunes in general. And uh, Paul Dantaka wasn't just constructed by a minstrel artist. Um, it was written by a, a, a retired drummer from the United States military, which was what Dan Emmett was doing at that particular time and, and, and playing the fiddle, traveling with circuses. Um, he had, uh, when he composed the tune, people thought of it as, as, as very much loaded with gibberish and nonsensical, uh, when you look at the songs and the lyrics, but like most of the minstrel music, it, it was written to an audience that was in a satirical fashion that, that was to engage an audience in a, in, a, in a view of their own lives. Bringing out all of the bias that was going on in the religious environment of the 19th century, the biases that were going on in the community life. Um, a, a, a typical example, uh, is there's a phrase in, in old Dan Tucker that goes, Tucker went round the hickory steeple. There he met some colored people. Some were black and some were blacker. Some were the color of old brown tobacco. Now, when you hear that lyric, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Tucker went round the hickory steeple. That meant he went to a church. That's what he's saying. He went to he went to a, a, a religious institution. And when he talked about some people were black, he's looking at the sinners. He's identifying the sinners, and some were blacker. These folks were the really bad sinners. And he knew these people in his community. And and it's a reflection of a lot of people can identify with. And then some were the color of old brown tobacco. Um, and obviously there's a racial integration in this particular environment. And that's what he's saying. Um, and all of these lyrics that are associated with a lot of these minstrel tunes were, were constructed for the entertainment of primarily the white population, using their own cultural existence as as a satire, they did it through the catalyst of of of, of blackface, um, which, again, a, a very problematic area by today's standards. But at that particular time, blackface evolution came as a result of one or two individuals in the circus circuit from the 1820s. Uh, Joel Walker Sweeney was one, and uh, I'm sure people are, are, are very much uh, familiar with his particular con- contribution to that circuit, uh, Turkey and the Straw. I did happen to see uh, a, a little bit of a, a, a uh, dialogue on that in, in one of the, the Fife and Drum page Posts, and again, when when you look at how that materialized, these performers that were doing this blackface minstrelsy evolved out of a circus clown environment. That's what they were. They were clowns in a in a traveling circuses, and it was a way for musicians to make money, to go out and dress in exotic clothing and 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 don the blackface attire. And, and again, they're not, they're, they're using the catalyst of the black race, of the, of the enslaved population, let's not call it the black race, let's call it the enslaved population, as an attention getter. And they're using the material of, of the white middle class or lower middle class uh, satirical humor, comical humor in order to deliver their message. And that's what made it successful now the question becomes again what happened with that with that venue that was so important that it would perpetuate itself up until the 1960s and and when i say that it 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 blackface minstrelsy continued in my neighboring community up until 1962 i think was the last uh, blackface show that they had done in the community. Uh, it was a very commonplace thing up here, um, and and again, w- when when you start to look at at why that was perpetuated, because there was music that was introduced that became cutting edge for its time, and perpetuated later in in formats such as jazz, and and with the 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 introduction of of, of African root beatings—you um, started to see the, the syncopation come in, and and and, and, and areas that drummers had ne- never previously ventured into until this this music materializes, and it's it is really extremely important to to be able to understand. That it, it it's roots music. It's it's really the only thing that we can identify as an American music, um, because it, it it grew within that time period and it traveled throughout the world. Uh, it's a force that needs to be reckoned, and unfortunately, it it it, it used a, a catalyst that that probably to, by today's well not probably by today's standards, by today's standards is certain, certainly certainly. Uh,
0: uh-huh. so so let let me ask you this and, and you alluded to it while you were just talking about the distinction between a tune and a song right so so if when dan emmett wrote dixie for example if he had just written a tune we would be playing it today with no problem right i mean it's a snappy you know tune in you know two four signature that that sounds good but he didn't he wrote lyrics to go with that tune so the lyrics of the song are now indelibly attached to the tune like when a fife and drum corps marches down the street and they play dixie they're they're not singing the words but they are playing the tune which is attached to the connotation of the lyrics so have there ever been and this might be a, a you know kind of a hardball question have there ever been any tunes that have been able to separate the connotation of the lyrics to the actual tune itself and, and remain popular that you know of? Oh, yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, uh, an interesting example. Uh, around 1602, from 1602 to 1620, uh, over in England, of course, you had uh, some, some rather great unrest and the Cornish bishop Trelawney was imprisoned in the Tower of London, and a popular tune that's actually today a very uh, a a Cornish anthem, uh, a Welsh anthem, and a regimental march of one of the Welsh armies. a tune called Shall Trelawney Die? Uh, Very, very popular overseas, and again, commonly known by everybody in that country. And when you look at Colonel H.C. Hart's instructor for the Fife and Drum of 1861, you'll see a a title called Le Petit Tambour. And it's a great little tune. Um, It it has an interesting drum beat that accompanies a three-part Fife uh, uh, arrangement, not not arrangement, but uh, sequence. And uh, when you think about the, the French connotation of the little drum, uh, what the title is, it's very innocuous. And, and again, it has no direct correlation to anything that might seem uh, somewhat biased. And if you do a little more research and go back to 1836, you will find that tune materialized as a tune called Alabama Joe. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, 1846. And the tune Alabama Joe, if you've ever read the lyrics, uh, and I, I would really encourage folks to, to go on like uh, the Levy site um, or the, the digital collections at the Library of Congress and type some of these titles in. Um, and and you can read these songsters and these broadsides that were published as popular music. And again, when you see popular music of the 19th century, that's, again, the birth of, of, of something that, We experienced today um, that that was very much unheard of earlier in history because the printing press now is is making cheap and available copies and, and, and instruments being made stateside rather than having to be imported all the time. People have music in their homes and. And buying a, a broadside or a, a piece of music that was published uh, for piano forte was your record album of the '60s, and your 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 cassette of the '70s, and your 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 uh, CD of the '90s, and uh, that was the way it was. That was the way it was popularized. So you you had those influences the publishers of course would put this material out to encourage people to buy it and they would have bands that would travel from community to community to play these numbers and get people's interest in buying it purchasing it so it it gained popularity Uh, specifically as a banjo melody when you looked at Alabama Joe the words would make the hair on the back of your neck rise um, because of its offensive lines that, that are represented there. Um, it's only because of, uh, again, the flagrant use of the N-word. And, uh, again, it it had really nothing to do with the enslaved population. It talked about an individual in the community that, that had enriched himself from the proceeds of those who surround him. It was more about the plantation owner than it was the, the, uh, the uh the enslaved population, so that but but you can pick up that book and and look at heart and say huh, this is a nice little tune doesn't have a controversial title, but anybody that knew anything about minstrel music would immediately recognize that tune the dan the the Emmett book when you start to look at what's in the Bruce and Emmett book um again uh money musk a very old scottish tune uh, wound up in a banjo tutor and in briggs banjo tutor in 1850 and again adopted to the uh, minstrelsy by adding lyrics to it they called it darky money musk um, a little bit different wow but it has a really cool syncopation on the banjo uh, and in the melody line that you don't hear on the five, but uh, again, there these tunes are, are throughout our history. Um, it you, if you if you type in, uh, 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 go to uh, the Levy Collection and, and and look up the girl I left behind me or British Grenadiers, and and you will find broadsides that are printed with, uh, with with blacks depicting military. Costumes and in a in a fashion that looks in disarray. Um, you will find all of these things, and, and it's in everything that we have. I've had minstrel broadsides that have Yankee Doodle in them. I have there 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 are a number of different things that that uh, that again because they turned them into songs. We now have to deal with the ramifications of the tune.
3: So right. so, Pete. Let me ask you this: um, You do a lot of programming where where you actually have um, more than just playing music. You actually ha- have a chance to speak to some of the audiences. Um, you know whether it's in schools or Stur- Sturbridge Village or different programs that you do around the country. Um, and so, how do you how do you prepare an audience um, to to understand this music? To to understand parts of this music that, that others might find offensive. Um, is it something that, that there's, um, it just requires some context. Do you have any, any thoughts on that?
2: Well, uh, as a career police officer retired, um, context was extremely important to me, especially as I did the retur- research on, on the material that we've done, uh, again, uh, and I will sit here and tell you there isn't a racist bone in my body, uh, and, and I'm going to use that to support what I have to say. Um, I felt that it was important that this music be exposed only because it was such an important segment of of, of our evolution in American music, and uh, in doing so, I interpret the pieces that I perform by today's standard, taking the 19th century language and, and identifying the the 20th century connotation to it. And uh, I, I absolutely have to interpret the music. And I get the forum to do that because it's a one-on-one scenario in most cases. Um, unfortunately, the fife and drum world doesn't get to experience that because you don't have that one-on-one uh, opportunity uh, that often you're in musters and parades and, and you're passing by and uh, unfortunately, the only communication that you have with your audience is after the event or after something has been performed. And, and it's usually a very small audience that that actually wants to Hear what your music was all about. Uh, unfortunately, the word travels very slowly in that environment as well, um, and and we share that. But uh, again, it's it's a mechanism or a device in, in the in the fife and drum community that uh, doesn't allow for that very often. Um, uh, there are ways that you can probably fix that. Uh, you know, having a, a little detailed, a, a little more detailed information at the onset of performances, uh, especially if people are going to do something that, uh, represents a specific topic. Um, we all have our routines. Uh, and, and again, when you look at those routines, um, they represent something. They represent something of each organization. Whether they're showcasing the drums or whether they're featuring a fife arrangement, who did that? Uh, how it was accomplished? How it was arrived at? And and again, you know, does good music really need to have that much of an explanation or interpretation today? I don't. I don't know if it does. To be honest with you. I can appreciate it, uh, but uh, you know, again, most. Folks don't take the time to 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 really put on their listening ears when it comes to that. Uh, I found over the years, and and again, even the expressions of 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 of, uh, of performance, we we share that in little little circles, but we don't really we don't showcase that as much as we probably could or should. You know, when you look at the traditions that have gone before us—the Gus Mollers, the you know Earl Sturts, the you know the, Doug, the Hugh Quigleys—when you look at drummers, and when you look at fifers, if I said the name Joe Heck, who would know who he is? Uh, you know, he, he's he's an award-winning fifer from the turn of the century, from 1880s, uh, out of Hartford. Uh, the, the, the names just go on and on. Um, in fact, I, I had a discussion with Jim Smith. Uh, a, a few months back uh, out of Pennsylvania about how we recognize the outstanding people in our community and, and the, the ones that we identify as community leaders within that fife and drum world. And uh, it's, it's interesting to hear some different perspectives on that. Um, we've, we've, we've always done that traditionally in a very oral tradition, uh, but there's no format when you take out the competition aspects of it um, for that to occur, and there are some lifelong people who have just dedicated so much to the fife and drum community over the years, um, that pass in rec- with very little recognition. And, uh, and, and I, 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 for one, you know, think there needs to be some sort of company of Fife and drummers hall of fame, um, in recognizing those individual comp- the, the contributions, and, and it doesn't have to be, you know. The greatest drummer, the greatest fifer it, it it really just needs to be uh, an identification that that person existed in this community um that's that to me is 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 huge
0: um, but you know it can very often be someone who doesn't even play a piper or a drum you know someone who supported a core, someone who made uniforms, you know like you know, through the weekend because a core needed them, you know, it can be those people. And there's a lots of those, lots of those,
2: you know, you know, doing the research over the years. And a lot of these, a lot of these people, it's, it's, I've been fortunate enough the last 50 years or so to be able to put a face to the names that, that I, that I like to talk about. Um, but, uh, I would love to look back at the 1880s and the 1870s and the 1900s and, and be able to put a face to that name. Um, and I'm sure that they're out there somewhere. Uh, but again, we're getting a little off topic <laughs> on this regard, but, uh, Again, just something that that we should think about as a community, um, and again, it's appropriate. Getting so, back, I- one more thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Getting back to the uh, to the to the appropriateness of music. Um, are we going to throw the Bruce and Emmett book out? Are we going to throw the Hot book out? Um, are we going to throw Ath- Acting Osling's book out? Are we going to throw Ralph Sweet's um, Pfeiffer's delight out? Uh, you know, th- these these are the kinds of things that that are embedded in our tradition, and 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 I say it's everybody's tradition. We don't discriminate. It's not a white middle class or upper middle class or lower middle class community. It's an everybody community. And I see that all the time. I, I see that constantly. I, I, I have my tent set up aside of the guys from Dickerson or, or, or Dow, and, and I see the camaraderie that exists in that community. Uh, I, I see the things that they play and they perform that – that cross those same bridges. So if, if it's okay for them to do Kingdom Come, then we need to be doing Kingdom Come. You know, that, that's, 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 that's certainly acceptable. Um, as a, as a community, as a tradition in the fife and drum jam session world, uh, as, as a, what we, what we all, all think of as traditional fife and drum music. Um, again, g- g- Amongst ourselves, I, I think we're we're a great population when it comes to that. Um, I, I don't think we need to think too hard into some of these nineteenth-century publications. I just think we need to be appropriate in how we present those. Um, and and again, you're going to hear the Bonnie Blue Flag come out of a a jam session, and people are going to say, "Oh my God, that's a Confederate tune." I'm not going to play it. And you have every right to not play it, and and but again, it's representative of a tradition. Again, in the fife and drum world, if if you're you're presenting yourself as a Confederate reenactor or doing a Confederate presentation, it's it's historical and documentable in that particular venue, and and it should be it should be performed if if that's if that's what they want to do. Again. When you talk about the offensiveness of it, is it going to be the duty of the performers or the duty of the announcer at a muster, uh, somebody to interpret that? Uh, that discretion has to be allowed to the presenter. I, I think that's I, I think they need to they need to make the decision on how they want to present that. Um, we're not a neo-nazi organization. We're not a pro-confederacy'. Uh, organization, we have no ties in the political aspects of those, and they need to remain that way. Uh, we need to be we need to be cautious of of of, of things that could intrude in that area, but um, but we still need to we still need to, be able to present those. I think it's it's very important for the tradition.
1: So, Peter, a couple things. <clears throat> I just had to check my microphone was on. Yeah, so I'm on the e-board for the company, and that is definitely going back to what you were saying about uh, you know creating a Hall of Fame uh, for past members of Fife and Drum that have, have contributed a lot. That has been a discussion that we've been talking about in the last uh, year or so. So I completely agree with you on that. Um, but going back to your point uh, on you know context is everything in terms of, of how these songs are presented I know in the in the Connecticut Patriots, we're obviously a, a progressive uh, fight for drum corps. We don't really have, um, you know, our foot too too far into the traditional aspect of things. Um, it was a discussion that we had a few years ago, like, should we play Dixie or should we, you know, not play Dixie? And at that time, we had all decided, uh, well, the majority of us had decided that, you know, for history's sake, we should probably continue to play it. Uh, obviously, the climate of the country is is what it is at this time. Um, and and we have since, you know rethought that we're not a a a, a, a reenacting group or we're not a, a you know a historical group. So I think we've made the decision to not play Dixie anymore. What is your suggestion for other cores that that may, you know come across? a particular tune and they they want to question that and and there's questions over that. Should they do that or should they not? Should it be the decision of the type of group they
2: are or? In 2000, we were, we went out to perform at the Dan Emmett festival in Mount Vernon, Ohio, which was Dan Emmett's hometown. And uh, we had every intention of going out there and playing Everything in the Bruce and Emmett book that he'd contributed and whatever opportunities we had to play. And Dixie, of course, being at the top of the list. About a week before we were set to travel out there, I I had a correspondence with one of the program directors who requested that we not play Dixie when we go out to the Dan Emmett Festival in Mount Vernon, Ohio this is in the middle of nowhere this is nothing but rows of corn on both sides of your street for miles and miles and it was an absolutely phenomenal festival where thousands of people appeared <laughs> out of nowhere and we got there and a conversation with with the program director Basically revolved around the fact that we traveled 1,200 miles to pay our respect to an author who contributed so much to the traditions and to uh, our, our repertoire and our desires and likes and education and all of the things that that the Emmett book provided for us, um, and we certainly were going to his grave to play Dixie at his gravesite. Um, and if people came, they came. If they didn't, they didn't. And 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 that was going to occur. We had more requests for Dixie that weekend than any time. That, in fact, I don't know if we ever played Dixie again. But <laughs> but the reality of it was, uh, the populace had a different perspective on that particular tune uh, in that environment. And the only reason that the program director had asked us not to play it was because there was a great controversy that occurred with a high school band that had used that as part of their their homecoming program. uh, And they used that particular tune. But again, people misunderstand what the context of Dixie is all about. And I say that. everybody recognizes that as a southern anthem um it it was a, a pet perpetuation of 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 the southern cause after the civil war and uh, your 20th century cartoon characters were were designed uh, to represent the south with the with the tune of dixie playing in the background so it, it has definitely taken on an identity that probably wasn't envisioned, and I can tell you not envisioned by its author, and by the people who consider themselves the successors or the winners of of our great civil war. When, When you look at Lincoln's closing remarks, where where he talked about dixie being introduced and requesting the band to play that as inauguration he basically says that 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 dixie is ours you know it, they've reclaimed that tune and of course it was a particular favorite of, of, of abraham lincoln so for us not to play that tune um was certainly out of the question uh, and if it was based on ignorance that that decision was made to to ask us not to play it um, or, or irreverence I, I really don't know uh, but the reality of it was uh, as victors from the from the north from the union side of, of and the liberation and, and of emancipation of the slaves uh, it meant a lot it meant a lot of different things. And I still think that means the same today, and and we do use it, um, again, in our programming when we talk about the punk performance of Dixie, that that Lincoln's claim to Dixie is what we are actually playing, not the Southern anthem um, and and not a perpetuation of the Southern cause. So we haven't abandoned it. We'll always play it. Um, and, and I think that you know, folks, if they understood that perception, would would probably feel the same because it is a great tune. But again, it, appropriateness comes comes into play. You know, and and again, if you're at a um, a parade where you encounter uh, you know, some of these protest groups that seem to be appearing today, you might not want to incite uh, a uh, a reaction from the crowd to, that might miscommunicate that message. Um, so you leaving that out of a street presentation is not, is not all that, uh, how would you put it? Inappropriate.
3: So a small personal story that, that, that I have, and, um uh, and Brian has actually experienced this as well. Um, playing with Grand Republic, um, Earl, Earl Battle, um, is our drum major. He's an African-American, Um, and he's our drum major and some of the, the, the medleys that we had, um, one of them had battle hymn of the Republic and we went into um, some other tunes and Dixie was, was towards the end of it, marching down the parade. I I believe it was Westbrook, one of the musters, something like that. Um, we, we were playing through this medley and we went into Dixie and at that moment, earl turns around still marching he's marching backwards at this point and he just starts circling his face and pointing at himself and kind of shaking his head no you know and and it was kind of a a wake-up moment for for all of us in grand republic to say you know this is something that that um we have to open our eyes to um for us specifically i'm not saying about about um the whole community and and different programming obviously but you know for us we we decided to take that out uh because of the personal connection that we have with earl and um you know and just the the kind of broader realization that that you know this is is something that that means more than than just the tune to some of our own members even
2: uh, absolutely and i and i think that's certainly appropriate there's no, no question about it in that sense it's also a term of endearment and uh, again that that's that's really respectable in that regard and uh, the cases that I've encountered um I, i've i've had situations and and again any of this material that I've done that really is off-color and, and its presentation has, has been through the support of academia in a lot of different cases. Uh, the music that I've done uh, is part of a Black History Studies at the University of Virginia. Uh, Professor Stephen Railton, uh, worked with him down there, uh, doing a lot of the the interpretation and, again, the, uh, the acceptance in the Academic circles of, of, of this particular venue, uh, in the New York Public Library and the New York Historical Society, um, both programs that uh, were presented during slavery in New York and uh, their previous uh, uh, campaigns of recognition of Black history uh, it was a two year campaign in the city of New York, uh, and that material and our material was used in in that as well. Uh, Again, nothing that I've presented hasn't been through uh, that kind of uh, scrutiny. And and I think that that's extremely important when you start to look at that, when you talk to the black population. Um, one of the things that I'm very, uh, how would you put it, disenchanted, probably is the best way uh, to look at it, is that we don't have more folks of the black community – involved in what's going on here. Um, we we have Dickerson and we have Dow and, and we embrace those cause and 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 I think they're phenomenal in in their uh, perception as far as is acceptance in our community. And uh, I think that uh, you know I'd love to see more of 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 that of that presentation interacting within our history venues and with our five and drum communities. Unfortunately, um, it doesn't it doesn't occur in in a lot of cases because it just doesn't appeal to that to that to that gender, I
0: guess. Uh, Well, you know, what was really cool about this particular instance, you know, during that parade is that, you know, this was a huge and this is all spontaneous. This was not. At all thought out. I mean, it was completely spontaneous, and it was a huge teaching moment for Earl, and it was a huge learning moment for the rest of us. And when he did what he did, you know, and I'm not sure everybody was watching him at that particular moment, maybe looking at their feet or you know looking at somebody on the parade route or whatever. But anybody who saw him, I believe, got it like I did immediately, and that's what this all it's all about, right? It's it's all about the you know the moments where understanding is is communicated, and we do we need a lot more of that, um, and you know and I hope it happens. But
2: I I, um, I was down in in uh, in West Virginia for a program uh, outside of Hopper's Ferry, and uh, I happened to be doing a show. Bolivar Heights. And in it was the tune Kingdom Come. And uh, of course, if folks aren't familiar with the tune, I mean the song, (laughs) they won't understand how this could affect um, somebody of of the Black race. And there was a gentleman there by the name of George Hardy who uh, was representing a, a black uh, fr- freed or contraband unit called the Sons of Ham. And these folks were were, were dressed in enslaved person's clothing and, and representing what a freed slave or emancipated slave would have been in 1863. And I felt that I had better reach out to his organization before we heard the music that I was going to present uh, specifically Kingdom Come um, because it was appropriate for the, the the interpretation that we were doing at that event. And I went up to him and I said, that, uh, George, I, I just want you to know that uh, we have a program here that might reach into some sensitivities of your population and, and the folks that are with you here today. And I... I I need to make sure that you understand the context of why I'm doing this and how it's going to be introduced. And after I explained it all, and uh, he stood there and he looked at me and he said he appreciated my input and he'd be insulted that if I altered the program to anything other than what would have been accurate for that particular time period. And I, I I took that as a, a pretty strong uh, commitment on his part to understanding the music and what what it was all about. And if anybody knows uh, the lyrics to Kingdom Come, uh, it has flagrant use of that term, Daki, and again can be considered, you know, certainly inappropriate because of the portrayal of the characters in that. But to both the white and black folk of that particular time period, it was a swan song. It was a it was an emancipation song. It was it was something that meant something to uh, the audience because now we were taking steps towards their freedom and certainly representative of the era. To do that today, again, takes the tune and puts it into that perspective. It does not. Reflect on its dialect that it was used in the song. Uh, it, it's recognized simply by its by its tune by its tune, and that's something that that crosses over, so to speak. As we were talking earlier, Dave, um, about the these crossover tunes that that seem to be acceptable, but yet um, written in a in a minstrelsy type of of, of a dialect. Um, Another situation where a fellow that recently passed away, Benny White, from the 54th Mass Reenacting Group, who screamed that song out any time that <laughs> I came within contact of him, because it was one of those things that represented to his race um, and his culture what the liberation was like of 1863. And uh, so we're certainly glad to do that. Uh, Again, uh, lyrics aside the, the, in the dialect that was written, um, it's still a, a very empowering tune. and And we play that in jam sessions all the time. Uh, you know, you, you hear that coming from the drum venue, and uh, and it's certainly appropriate. And I don't think that yeah. that's that's really uh, a tune that should be cast aside. it It, it delivers a very strong message. Um, and
0: uh, yeah. That's really cool. It that's fascinating. But you know, uh, Pete, we have to have you back because we have scratched the surface of the shit you know, and we need to learn more of that for sure. <laughs> um, we do, but this is no no BS, man. I mean, there's there's you, you know, we could we could talk to you for hours. And maybe one day we will. We might want to, yeah. We, we might want to have
1: you on as like a regular uh, segment. We can just kind of dive into this one foot.
2: <laughs> I, I not- no, don't play that tune. Oh that's a good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, pe- people, people are, are very, very good when it comes to that. And and you know, I, lo- I love the sensitivities. I love the fact that the community is sensitive and recognizing those those sensitivities. Um, by identifying a really, really, really microscopic approach towards it, um, you know, I, I a lot of times I, I come across this information and and, and file it away in a in a category where it'll never hear the light of day, um, and and in some cases uh, I've I've just. I looked at it and said well it's insignificant the population in the world has moved on it's nice to know that the the community kind of does reflect back on these things occasionally and
1: uh, I'll have you know I I, uh, I actually on all my spare time that I've had this past week since that post went up on the Facebook page I have done so much research on the origins of tunes just to make sure you know we're okay or or if this tune works and and one tune that we that we do play is kingdom coming and I didn't know anything about that, so now I got to do a little bit more research. So I, it, it's it's been really kind of interesting because, and I and I said it before too. We just grew up in this fife and drum thing. We just played the tunes that were passed on to us. There was never any historical context to anything that we played. And and the more that we've done this, and, and I and I guess it's the more you know. Uh, sensitive, the the community has become, and, and rightfully so, with with the climate of the country and all that stuff. It's become a, a really cool thing to really dive into the historical significance of these these uh, these tunes. So, thank you very much, Pete. This has been incredible. Thank you well, so much,
2: Pete. You're entirely welcome. I, I've enjoyed it, and, and again, you know, it's so important for the tradition, and I and I think that, um, like I said, everybody everybody's doing their part to be. Inoffensive and to, to and to identify, you know, the sensitivities. You don't find that in every community, and you know, it's just another identity that that this community has that makes people want to contribute more, want to participate more in events. So maybe because we're missing them
0: so much now, it's yeah, yeah, that could be. It's, a, it's no, but seriously, thank you for your time and your immense knowledge. This has been fascinating, I and mean, we we really appreciate it. Great, I appreciate it as well.